So we're talking about social and religious anarchists here, people who think that based on their 10 minutes of experience and thought, they're capable of completely upending the world and the moral consensus of centuries. Most of us have some experience with folks like that. Depending upon your age, you might be tempted to say that the world is currently being run by folks like that. It can certainly feel that way at times. Such people can rise to prominence quickly by making deceitful plans, by hatching schemes in the shadows, by dividing people and causing chaos. But the end of such people is assured. Calamity will come upon them suddenly. In a moment, they will be broken beyond all healing. And the reason for that is simple. God is opposed to such people. They are not only fighting against the natural order, they are fighting against the one who designed the natural order, and that's a fight they will not win. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. It does seem as if there are an awful lot of people intent on overturning the natural and social order, things that have stood the test of time for centuries, all based on ideas and commitments that are untried and untested. The wise father in this story warns his son about getting involved in such things. There is wisdom and stability in sticking to the old roads. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Proverbs chapter 6. Here in this chapter, we have two more fatherly talks, as David Atkinson refers to them. The first one focused on the theme of money, and the second one focused on the theme of sex. And these are good conversations for dads to be having with their children. We need to share with our kids what the Bible has to say about these things. We need to share with our kids what the Bible has to say about money. The internet is constantly abuzz with half-truths and dubious sales pitches and get-rich-quick schemes. Everybody today wants to grow up to be a social media influencer or a YouTube star. But for every Jake Paul out there who makes big money, there are 10,000 Joe Blows living in their mama's basement. So there is wisdom in talking to our children about economic realism and good old-fashioned work ethic. And there's wisdom as well in talking to our children about the benefits and safety of the traditional biblical understanding of human sexuality. We can't just say, do it this way because the Bible says so. As parents, we need to help our children understand why the Bible says so. We need to help our children see the wisdom and beauty of God's ways so that they learn to trust him instinctively. And that's a process. Kids don't come out of the womb assuming that God's ways are right and lead to life. It's our job as parents to teach them that. And that's what we see the wise father in the book of Proverbs attempting to do in this passage. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. 
Bruce Walke describes this opening paragraph as a warning against undiscriminating impulsive benevolence, closed quote. I'll be honest with you. I wish there was more conversation about this in the church. Some acts of benevolence are really just self-soothing performance art. We want to feel good. We want to look good. But we don't think clearly about what we're doing and about whether or not it will help anyone in the end. We need to be wiser about such things. Here, the specific issue appears to be impulsively agreeing to act as surety for an unwise loan. The scenario imagined is that the son has been snared by the words of his mouth. That is to say, he has impulsively agreed to get involved in this scheme. He has made a pledge, and now he's on the hook. You don't want to do that for someone you don't really know. The neighbor here is also referred to as a stranger. So this is someone you don't know very well. You don't know whether they're telling you the truth about what they're going to use this money for. You don't know what their track record is in terms of paying back debt. You don't know whether they're telling the truth about what they're going to use this money for. You don't know what their track record is in terms of paying back debt. You don't know whether their plan is likely to succeed or fail. You really don't know anything. You just wanted to look good and you wanted to feel good. So foolishly, impulsively, you put yourself on the hook. If that happens, son, get yourself off that hook as soon as you possibly can. Eat some humble pie. Go and beg to be released from your pledge. That's what the father is saying here. It's better to be humiliated than to be financially bound to someone you don't really know and that you don't really have any influence over. So don't sleep, don't eat, be like an animal in a trap, do whatever you need to do to get out of that situation. Now, we'll come back to this theme again and again and again in the book of Proverbs, because Proverbs has a lot to say about wise economic practice. And on several different occasions, it talks about the foolishness of acting as a surety or guarantor for others. Now, obviously, there are going to be certain exceptions for family members, for example, but the general rule here is that it's not a good idea to act as surety for a neighbor. There are better, wiser, less risky ways of being kind and helpful to those in need. In verses 6 to 11, the father warns the son about laziness. Now, if there's a connection here between these paragraphs, it is likely the fact that both laziness and Foolish benevolence are likely to lead to poverty and dependence. The father says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. So in the first part of the poem, the father points out that nature rewards initiative, forethought, and diligence. If you're motivated, if you plan ahead, and you work hard, the created order will yield to you a bountiful harvest. Nature will feed you. The world will support and supply you. In the second part of the poem, the father rebukes the personified sluggard. 
Obviously, this is rhetorical. We're not to assume that the son is lazy. This is just good artistry. The father is making his point in a memorable way. And his point is that sleep, slumber, and laziness lead to poverty. If you sleep through planting season, then come harvest time and come winter time, you are going to be hungry indeed. Derek Kidner comments on the sluggard here saying, by inches and minutes, his opportunity slips away, close quote. Nature marches on. If you miss your window, then you will be hungry and sad for a long time. You have to be alert. You have to be on time. You have to be thinking ahead. That's the idea here. In English, we say, make hay while the sun shines, and the early bird gets the worm. Those are proverbial ways in our culture of making essentially the same point. Now, incidentally, we see here a commendation in the Bible of the study of nature. If we believe that God is creator, and if we believe that the created order communicates truths about God, which we should, given Psalm 19 and Romans 1, then we ought to study nature, both as an act of worship and as part of the process of education and self-improvement, as per the instruction of the Father in this passage. Go to the ant, consider her ways, and be wise. In the introduction episode, I quoted David Haynes and Andrew Fulford saying that the very fact of divine creation seems to point towards what has been traditionally called natural law. The notion that there is, because of the divine intellect, a natural order within the created world by which each and every created being's goodness can be objectively judged, both on the level of being, in brackets, ontological goodness, and for human beings specifically on the level of human action, in brackets, moral goodness, closed quote. So according to Haynes and Fulford, the natural order sets forth patterns and standards albeit corrupted and obscured by sin, that reflect original purposes, intentions, and truths that may be used to evaluate goodness, both on the level of ontology and human action. In this passage, the action of the ant is set forth as a sort of standard against which the actions of the sluggard are weighed and found wanting. And we see this sort of thing all the time in the Bible. In the book of Job, for example, when Job's friends accuse him of excessive emotion and intemperate outbursts in his speeches, Job replies, does the wild donkey bray when he has grass or the ox low over his fodder? That's Job chapter six, verse five. So Job says, animals are allowed to make noise in response to physical stimuli. So why shouldn't I be? Job is using the standard of nature to justify his own behavior as a member of the natural realm. Old Testament and New, there is an assumption that we can learn a great deal about God, about ourselves, and about right and wrong behavior in general by studying the book of nature. Here we are being told to study ants to learn lessons about prudent industry. Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here if I can. I found this entire section about natural law very interesting. We probably don't talk enough about natural law, and I think it would be fair to say we don't listen enough to the voice of nature. And I don't mean that in the sense of mother nature. I mean it more in terms of Psalm 19 that says, 
The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. That's Psalm 19, 1-3. So according to the Bible, nature is constantly speaking. But I'm not sure that many people are listening anymore. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's a consequence of the Renaissance and then beyond that, the Industrial Revolution. Human beings have come to think of themselves as the masters of the universe and as having control over the natural realm. And so we don't listen. And we aren't informed as much by natural and even biological realities. An obvious example of that would be how we attempt to separate today concepts of gender from biology. It used to be that if you came out of the womb with a penis, for example, you were recognized as a boy. And likewise, if you came out of the womb with female reproductive organs, you were recognized as a girl. But now we say that a person can determine their gender and they can use their words to create reality. So if you say you are a boy, then you're a boy. If you say you are a girl, you're a girl. We have learned to ignore nature and to impose our will on nature to an extent that I'm sure would shock and alarm the wise father in this story. Hmm. So obviously the assumption here is that we should be listening to nature and observing the natural order. But how far do we take that? Because some things in nature are pretty brutal. There is a sense in which nature is red in tooth and claw. The cat eats the mouse. The dog barks at other dogs. Are, are we supposed to be learning from that? Yeah, it's a great question. There is, of course, a sense in, in the Bible in which nature is groaning. Paul talks about that in Romans 8.22. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So nature has been affected by the fall. It isn't operating right now exactly the way it is designed to do because it lacks the leader that it was designed to function under. And I assume you're referring to human beings there. Yeah, right. According to the Bible, human beings were created as a sort of ruling creature. We were supposed to be under God and over everything else. And so when we fell away from God, nature fell into a state of unmanagement, you might say, like a garden that no one has been tending for centuries and more than centuries. So there's a wildness and a feralness to nature that departs from the original design. But part of the promise of the Bible is that when we are restored, nature also will be restored. So you have all these visions of the new heavens and the new earth where the lion lies down with a lamb and where children play with snakes and all is peaceful and harmonious as it was originally meant to be. But of course, we're not there yet. And so in nature right now, we see enduring order and principles of wisdom, and we also see decay and distortion. So we need to read the book of nature with discernment. And that's what the wise father is doing here with his noble son. All right. I love that. Thanks for the clarification. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 12. In verse 12, we come to the third paragraph in this fatherly talk. If we're looking for a connection between these three stanzas, we might say that they're all speaking about a different type of person who is in danger of becoming poor. The softy, the sluggard, and now here, the insurrectionist. Verse 12 says, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, 
he will be broken beyond healing. Well, the first thing we need to figure out, obviously, is the identity of the sort of person we're talking about here. We have two overlapping terms translated by the ESV as a worthless person and a wicked man, or as the NIV has it, a troublemaker and a villain. Alan Ross says helpfully here, these terms describe one who is both wicked and worthless. Whatever the word's etymology, a survey of its use shows that it describes troublemakers of all kinds who violate the law or who act in a contemptuous or foolish manner against cultic observance or social institutions, close quote. So we're talking about social and religious anarchists here, people who think that based on their 10 minutes of experience and thought, they're capable of completely upending the world and the moral consensus of centuries. Most of us have some experience with folks like that. Depending upon your age, you might be tempted to say that the world is currently being run by folks like that. It can certainly feel that way at times. Such people can rise to prominence quickly by making deceitful plans, by hatching schemes in the shadows, by dividing people and causing chaos. But the end of such people is assured. Calamity will come upon them suddenly. In a moment, they will be broken beyond all healing. And the reason for that is simple. God is opposed to such people. They are not only fighting against the natural order, they are fighting against the one who designed the natural order, and that's a fight they will not win. The wise father points that out to the son, using a poetic device called numeric parallelism, beginning in verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Numeric parallelism is a fairly common rhetorical device in Hebrew literature. You can see it in the prophets, for example, where it is used to create drama and to heighten anticipation. So in Micah chapter 5, verse 5, for example, it says, When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, close quote. So seven and eight, six and seven. This is a poetic way of saying that and then some. This is the big box of what God hates. It is six feet, nay, seven feet wide and high. That's the basic idea. In this big box of stuff God hates, we see haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run to evil, all of which, of course, are body parts. And then to cap the list, we get whole people, a false witness who breathes out lies, and a person who sows discord among brothers. Now, I suppose the word that most contemporary English readers are going to struggle with there is the word hate. We often hear well-meaning Christians say that God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. But this passage doesn't seem to square with that. It doesn't say, God hates lies, but loves liars. It says, God hates a false witness who breathes out lies. So what do we do with that? Alan Ross is helpful again here. He says, by saying that the Lord hates them, 
the writer means that God is opposed to them, separate from them, and will punish those who do them. Since he hates these practices, those who do them cannot remain in his presence, closed quote. Ross does a good job there of keeping people and practices together because that's how life works, and that's the basic idea that is presented in this passage. The Bible seems to suggest that, to some extent anyway, we are what we do. Sin is never outside of us. As Jesus says, sin bubbles up from the inside of us, out of the abundance of the heart. The mouth speaks and the body does. So person and practice go together. The person overflows in practice. And because God hates the practice, if the person keeps doing the practice, then the person and the practice together will be exiled from the presence of God on a permanent basis. That's what the Bible says. And that's what the father is saying here to the son. Don't be hanging around with these guys. Don't join hands with arrogant, deceitful, slanderous, violent, divisive people. Because if they are holding on to these practices and you are holding on to them, the whole lot of you together is going to be cast down into the pit of destruction. So break away now. That's the idea. As I mentioned off the top, in this chapter, we have two fatherly talks. The first one focused on the theme of money and the danger of hanging around with people chasing easy money and doing things that lead to disaster. And then the second talk here is focused on sex, specifically the danger of the seductive woman. Again, these are good conversations for a dad to be having with his children. Verse 20, my son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. This section begins with a call to the son to pay attention to the instruction he is receiving. It will guard his life and lead him in paths of wisdom and happiness. The instruction specifically here has to do with avoiding the unchaste wife. Maybe the woman next door is particularly beautiful. Maybe her husband doesn't appreciate her. Maybe your wife doesn't quite light your fire anymore. These things can happen. But going into that woman's house is like taking an elevator down to the depths of hell. Do not do it. You would be better off swallowing a hand grenade. He even says, you'd be better off sleeping with a prostitute. Sleeping with a married woman is a capital crime. It is a maximum sin. It is bold letters, all caps, stupid. Don't do it. Now, some of us may struggle with the rhetorical approach being employed here. To be clear, the father is not in any way recommending that his son sleep with a prostitute. I think he's saying that while all sins are bad, some sins are catastrophic in terms of the personal, spiritual, and social consequences they entail. Stealing is bad. Murder is worse. I think that's the idea he's trying to communicate. The father's pulling out all the stops because he needs his son to understand that there are some sins 
that are really hard to come back from. There are sins that obviously can be forgiven, but they will still ruin your life. Give those sins a maximally wide berth as you steer through life. That's what he's saying, and I think that's good counsel. In verse 27, the emphasis begins to shift from the severity of the penalty for adultery to its inevitability. Verse 27, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. So here the father is saying, don't think for a second that there might be a way for you to engage in this activity without paying the price I am predicting. There is not. You can't carry fire in your pocket and not get burned. Adultery always exacts a heavy toll. She will tell her husband to make him jealous. He will find out in his own. Your own guilty conscience will force it out of you. One way or another, your sin will find you out and it will bring you down. And no one will be sympathetic to you when you fall. The whole neighborhood will look down on you. Passers-by will kick you while you're down. Nobody likes a homewrecker. Nobody respects an adulterer. This is the path to ruin and shame. That's the gist of the speech. It's pretty powerful stuff. Now, again, we observe the rhetorical force being applied here by the father. Just like he says that adultery is worse than sleeping with a prostitute, now here he says that it's also worse than theft. And some of us don't like that, but we need to be careful not to hear the father saying something he's not saying. Bruce Walke is helpful here. He says, The father's first argument that adultery is more costly than prostitution no more endorses sex for hire than his third argument that adultery is more foolish than theft endorses stealing, closed quote. The point is that adultery is maximally bad. It is more socially, spiritually, and relationally disruptive than just about any other sin you can imagine. So don't do it. Run away from the door of the adulteress and run back to the embrace of your wife. Whatever is standing in the way of that embrace, figure it out. For the sake of your marriage, for the sake of your honor in the public square, and for the sake of your eternal soul. That's good counsel, Old Testament and new. Thanks be to God. Well, that's all the time we have for today. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 